Today, uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Amos. And I want to just begin with this, this statement. That, and I want, just look at this, this, this title right here. That justice flows from righteousness. Uh, this is what Amos chapter 5, verse 24, is the most well-known, most quoted verse from this book. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The righteousness is the stream and justice is the water. Uh, and, and I just think it's really important that we think about, about this statement because where, where have we heard this most prominently, specifically in America's history? Because I don't know if you guys recall, but Dr. Martin Luther King in uh, August, August 28th of 1963, in his famous I Have a Dream speech, declared these words, No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Now, what I want to begin by asking you is Martin Luther King is quoting a passage from thousands of years before. And he says, we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What does that tell us about Martin Luther King's speech? What it tells us is that the desire for justice hasn't gone anywhere. And the problem of achieving justice hasn't gone anywhere. And righteousness seems to be something that is often missing from the human experience. That Martin Luther King, in, in the progression of an advancement of modern civilization, specifically think about Western civilization, think about America, think about America today, would Martin Luther King say today, if he was alive right now, it's happened. Justice has come. Righteousness is here. That's not what he would declare. Not in the way that he meant it. That there is a longing to see the oppressed vindicated. That there's a longing to see wrongs righted. And yet that longing is fully intact right now at this moment in this day. Racism has not gone anywhere. It's still alive and well. Are things maybe better than they were? I would say on the surface, maybe yes. But those issues and those injustices are still happening all over the world. And it doesn't seem to matter how enlightened we become, how advanced we become, how progressive or educated we become. There is something fundamentally wrong with the human heart. And this is why I want to share with you the verse below Amos chapter 5, verse 24, which is Jesus being asked what the most important commandments are. And he said to him in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the first commandment. In, the, in, in other words, that humanity was made for a relationship with God. 
And out of that relationship flows the second commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so a love for God, a, relation, a right relationship with God leads to a right relationship with others. In other words, when we reflect God's righteousness, our lives then become just, if you will. But there's something problematic about that. Let's define, actually, if you will, first of all, what righteousness is. Because righteousness speaks to the fact that we were made in the image of God. That we were meant to be image bearers. And our first parents, as we're told in Genesis, when, when they were without sin, they were in this perfect union with God. They were in union together. There was no shame. There was no guilt. And they were covenant partners with God in this very powerful communion uh, that, that actually didn't last very long because we're told immediately in the story that something happened, something horrible happened. And that as image bearers of God, that, that through sin, that sin marred that image. And that image, that what that means is that sin did not destroy the image. It means it infected every component of our lives as image bearers. And that means that every aspect of our lives has been infiltrated. So even the good we do is still mixture. And it's problematic. And what that means is that righteousness, which is, which is actually reflecting the right character of God, or actually reflecting His character in its fullness is it's, it's being literally the vehicles of his definition of what is right and wrong. What is the essence of sin? Was our first parents were choosing for themselves what is right and wrong. And out of that came a deep problem. A deep problem that we often uh, misunderstand. And that, and that is this, is that because of sin, sin has destroyed our ability to live in righteousness. We do not have righteousness of our own. And what that has led to is mistreatment of others. Jesus' statement, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is not possible because sin has actually destroyed our ability to actually be in communion with God. And it requires some sort of divine intervention that we will be looking for uh, in, our, in this, this time together, at looking over Amos. Now, here is the, the second reality, and I want you to see this, and that is that word justice. Because if righteousness uh, is, is, this, is humanity, is image bearers who are meant to reflect His righteous character, God's righteous character, then the word justice can be used in the negative sense uh, in which a person is punished for their wrongdoings. And we all seem to want punishment for those that have committed wrong (laughs) we're quite comfortable of putting ourselves usually on the right side and putting the other on the wrong side it's what our first parents did in the garden because the moment sin enters in is the is the moment that humans move toward the natural default setting which is scapegoating which is always placing ourselves on the right side and, and uh, of, of whatever argument is happening. This is Bob Dylan's uh, famous song during the civil rights movement, but God is on our side, speaking of war. Uh, and, and I think that this, 
this speaks to the human tendency. And injustice in the negative sense is the person being punished for wrongdoings. But most of the time, when the Bible uses the word justice, it's in a positive or restorative in which those who are hurt or wronged are restored and given back what was taken from them. And so this desire that God speaks through the prophet Amos is what he wants to see is justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And he declares this over a nation that was living the exact opposite of that. It was unrighteous and it was unjust. But really that's God's declaration and desire over humanity and yet humanity's dilemma continues to be that we are unrighteous and we tend to be unjust. And this is a deep problem. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. What Martin Luther King declares is the cry of the human heart who has been made in the image of God But that image is marred, which means that we are bound and incapable of achieving what we want to achieve. It's a dilemma. And the question is, and I want to present to you today, is there an answer? And the way that humans have answered this question throughout the ages is by presenting the world with different ladders to climb. But the gospel presents a completely different idea something totally foreign because the gospel does not present a ladder and Christianity is not a ladder in which you climb. Christianity is driven by a cross. A cross is not something you climb. A cross is something you die on. And this is why it says here, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And what we have there is that the law cannot save us. The law condemns us. It curses us because it's a plumb line from heaven that just simply shows us how bent we are. And what God desires for us is relationship, a restoration of relationship. And that restoration of relationship allows us then to become conduits by which grace flows through our lives and brings healing to a world that desperately thirsts for grace every moment of every day. What we need is Jesus. Because Jesus, it says in Romans 10 verse 4, is the end of the law. So, justice flows from righteousness, but no one's righteous, which is why we need Christ. So let's move in to the book of Amos. Now, Amos In chapter 1, verse 2, it says, And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. And let's first of all answer the question of who is Amos. Amos was a shepherd shepherd and a fig tree farmer dwelling in the southern kingdom Judah and is called by God. And I think this is really interesting. In a time where the nation was... Functioning in idolatry and in, in injustice. Those are the two primary sins that, that God is condemning through the prophet of Amos. The, the nation is not hearing the voice of God, but Amos is hearing the voice like a roar. 
And he is called by God to announce warnings of judgment to the northern kingdom of Israel and the surrounding nations. And this is during the time of the reign of Jeroboam II, who was one of the worst kings of Israel. But what's interesting is that under Jeroboam's rule, this was a time of incredible military expansiveness and economic prosperity. Uh, and in fact, you can read about uh, Jeroboam II in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 29. Amos' ministry was a short ministry, but what Amos was called by God to do as he hears the roar of God is that he was called to address the abuse of power or injustice and the idolatry, uh, which were the two besetting sins uh, that, that had plagued Israel. Uh, the particular fault actually was on the powerful or the wealthy or the influential, the leadership who had literally seduced the underprivileged from obedient worship of Yahweh, had taken their lands, had confiscated their goods, had violated their women, and had cheated them in businesses along the way, as well as selling the poor into slavery. And here we find Amos. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Now what's fascinating is you see again in Amos chapter 3 verses 7 and 8, the same thing is declared. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to, serve, to, the, to his servants, the prophets. The prophets are ones who God calls to become conduits or mouthpieces by which he can declare his judgment and his mercy upon his people. And I, I love that this language, the roar of God, because in our age, uh, and, and even then, uh, what we are far more comfortable about talking is the silence of God, the difficulty of hearing his voice. We like to talk of God's voice as the still, soft voice of God. But the prophets didn't hear still, soft voices. They heard roars. And what we have in the roar of God is it declares something that I think is really unique. And this fights against uh, what has been traditionally held uh, by, by Christians in regards to the attributes of God. And that is one of the attributes that actually has its origin more in Greek philosophy than it does in the Bible is that God has no emotion, essentially. We call it the impassibility of God or the immutability of God. He doesn't change and therefore he's not affected by what people do because he's God and he can't. But that's not what the Bible declares. And the way theologians have tried to get around that is they'll say, well, it's just, it's just anthropomorphic language. God doesn't really feel. I'm like, I don't know. He seems pretty mad. <laughs> I, Jesus seemed to cry real tears. I don't think he was faking it. <laughs> I, I think, in fact, what we see, if Jesus is the revelation... If he is God in the flesh, and Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father, we see, that, we see that God then, we can say that God actually feels deeply. And when, when Amos says the Lord roars, it's like a yell of anguish over sin. He's heartbroken. He's angry at the abuse that is being applied to the most vulnerable but he is also heartbroken over the sinfulness and the disobedience of his people whom he loves. Who are walking in idolatry. Who have taken his law and left him on the sidelines. In fact, Hosea 
This is a, fav- a favorite phrase of the prophets. Hosea chapter 11, verses 10 and 11 says, the roar is a roar that calls for return. God is yelling for His people to come back to Him. He says, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When He roars, His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their home, declares the Lord. Or in Joel, as you guys considered last week, in Joel chapter 3, verse 16, the Lord roars from Zion. This is a threaten, This is God threatening judgment upon Israel for its disobedience. And He says, the Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to His people and a stronghold to the people of Israel, both a promise of protection and a declaration of judgment on sinfulness and disobedience. And what this reveals to us is something that's so important as we consider God's emotions, His real heartbrokenness over sin, His anger. I I like to say that God's wrath is His love violated. And God is angry at sin because it robs Him of what He loves, which is people. And when humans oppress one another, and what we need to understand is that justice requires righteousness, but unfortunately in sinfulness, Humans often function in self-righteousness, which means our justice is often not to be trusted. Our judgment is not to be trusted. And so here you have this declaration, and I love this. He says, for the Lord does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. Look at how personal God is. He's revealing His heart to the prophets. Why? He doesn't choose the prophet so that He can give him secrets Notice the revelation to the prophets, the secrets of the Lord are meant to be yelled to the people. God is a God who wants to reveal Himself to the world. He's not trying to keep Himself hidden from the world. He's trying to reveal Himself, but humanity in its sinfulness has lost its ability to hear the voice of the Father. Think about the children of Israel. They're like, they're like rebellious kids. Like they're like the prodigal who's, who's gone so far from, the, from their dad they can't hear him speak anymore. And what I want to argue today is that we need to know that God longs to speak to us, is speaking to us. And the question is, have we attuned our hearts and our minds to hear from him? And maybe the issue for us is that we've replaced relationship with form. And are we that different from Israel? For I would argue that Israel is simply the representative of, of humanity and its sinfulness and brokenness. That even though God chooses them and selects them and lovingly provides for them and even gives them, gives them uh, freedom from their slavery, they represent the natural tendency of the human heart. If it is not regenerated by the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus, we will inevitably go back to slavery. It doesn't matter. And that's the problem. And God is heartbroken over it. What I want you to see is that God cares deeply. I like what it says in Amos 4.12. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. Prepare to meet your God. Now look with me. If God is a God who feels deeply, cares deeply about who we are and what we do, and that He is angry when we oppress one another, when we judge one another in self-righteousness, when we take advantage of one another. If He is angry over sin, 
what can we do about this? Because look what we have next. And this, this reveals really the second reality is that God is a God who feels deeply, cares deeply, and sin is something that he is going to address and will judge. And we got to see the problem then. Because we're confronted immediately with the impotence of humanity. Notice the demand in Amos chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. God declares this. He says, seek good and not evil. This is what he wants. This is what righteousness looks like. Seek good and not evil. That's problematic because the sin of our first parents is defining for themselves what is good, what is right, and what is wrong. And can we in this day, in this age in which we live, say that we're doing a good job of defining for ourselves what is good and what is evil? No, we are like the days of the judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And he says, and so the Lord and the God of hosts will be with you. If you seek good and not evil that you may live, understand this, God will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good. And then notice the outcome of hating evil, loving good, that is reflecting righteousness, is that justice will be established in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So the demand, unfortunately, is an impossibility. Because what we have is the problem of sin. And what we need to understand, even as Christians, is this. Is that sin is a disease that is never actually healed in this life. It is forgiven And I like what Paul Zoll says. He says, with the intervention of grace, sin is regarded and grappled with in such a way that it no longer surprises or takes over in quite the same way, but it is never fully healed until death, nor is is it wiped out within the human comedy. This is one of the problems that we forget as Christians is that we quickly, the reason that, that justice and righteousness seems to often be missing even within the church is because we have turned the church into another ladder to climb rather than reminding people that what we need daily is the cross. The cross is a place where our sins are put to death because we are, it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. That is the key and we'll get to that in a moment but what I want us to see is the demand is an impossibility because look at the dilemma. Here is, here is the tendency that we have in the church today. It's the same tendency that, that the, the children of Israel had which is that we lose God and we're left with empty form that actually God is disinterested in. He's in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 23. He says, I hate, that is, I despise your feasts, the very feasts that he commanded Israel to keep. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. I'm not impressed that you come on Sunday. He says, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I'm not interested in your worship songs. I don't hear it. I will not listen. Notice once again the pathos of God, how much he feels in these statements. The demand is an impossibility which creates the dilemma and the dilemma of the human heart is to go back to that religious impulse and religion by its very definition is man's attempt to make himself right before God in his own effort. We need something different. We need a different answer. 
or we, like Martin Luther King, will be declaring from the rafters a thing that everybody longs for, but nobody seems to be able to get a handle on. And this is why we have to understand the fullness of sin to see the radical reality of how foreign, counterintuitive, offensive, and simply unfair grace really is. Look what he says in Matthew 23, verse 23. Jesus says this to the religious leaders of his day, the very same thing that Amos declares to the people of Israel. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting others. And what is the reason for that? What Jesus is trying to show, what he's, what, he's, what he's hammering down, and he does this in the Sermon on the Mount as well, is he takes the law and he doubles down on it and makes it even more impossible. Because he says, it's not, a, it's, you, not, only, not only should you not kill someone, but I'm telling you that every time you're angry with your brother or sister without cause, you've committed murder. Man, I kill someone every day when I drive then. Still, I'm your pastor. I'm, I am like a full-on murderer if that's the case. I mean, you think about the ways, that we, the ways that we get angry with our spouses, with our kids, the ways that we get frustrated with our coworkers, the ways that we naturally slip back into these realities in which sin plays itself out, and yet we have our religious observances. We pray, we read our Bibles, we do the Bible project faithfully. We're on the year the Bible read-through. We serve at the Portland Rescue Mission. We do all these things, and yet there's a fundamental issue, and the issue is spelled out for us in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Paul says. He says, no, not at all, for we have already charged that all. And what does all mean in Scripture? All means all, and that's all all means. That's, I thank James Vernon McGee for that. Um, he says, no, all, all, I lost my place, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin, notice that, there's under sin, this is this reality that lies over all of creation grown, sin has infiltrated everything, as it is written, none is righteous, uh, who is righteous? None, no, not one, no one understands, who understands? No one. No one seeks for God. Who seeks for God? No one. What was it that God said? Seek good and not evil, that you may live. Who does that? No one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Which is to say, even the good that you do has been infiltrated by this reality of brokenness and of sin. I think that this is important, and I want to give you a great illustration. I read this book last week by this man, Chad Bird, who wrote this book called Upside Down Spirituality, and he had this amazing illustration of what the human heart is like, and he said when Adam named the animals, what he didn't realize is that he would actually be naming what humans actually are like, and he gives the example of his own dog, and he says, I take my dog... Or rather, he takes me for a walk. Justice, that's the dog's name, is a nine-pound dachshund, a miniature weenie dog. 
What he lacks in size, however, he makes up for in vigorous pursuit of adventure. Incapable of walking in a straight and narrow course or unwilling to, he pulls the long leash to its limits and winds up corkscrewed around mailboxes, trees, and my legs. In the park, he will race off the trail toward grazing bucks 20 times his size. He seems particularly to enjoy discovering random piles of feces and busting a move thereon to, imp- to an impressive breakdancing routine popular among canines. What I deem frustrating, dangerous, ill-advised, or just plain gross to justice is totally natural. He's just doing what dogs do. He is acting according to his canine nature. He is following his heart whatever, wherever it leads him, even if it leads to rolling in a pile of dung. And as such, justice is a Bible dog. He is an image of humanity, specifically a tiny canine embodiment of the human heart. It's great. It's just a great image. This picture in this little wiener dog rolling around and poop. And you're like, that's what the human heart's like. Uh, he goes on to say, and I love this, he says, the Bible doesn't foster great expectations for humanity. Unless by great expectations we mean the exception of colossal harm. When the scripture answers the question, just how messed up are we? They hem us in on every side. No escape. God has shut up all in disobedience. That's from Romans 11. Eugene Peterson, recasting of Psalm 14, perfectly sums it up. God sticks his head out of heaven and he looks around. He's looking for someone not stupid. (laughs) I love this. (laughs) One man, even God expectant, just one God-ready woman, and he comes up empty. A string of zeros. A string of zeros indeed. Everyone scores a big fat F on God's goodness test. That is a profound and honest depiction of humanity. Remember what I said, the best way to think of the sinfulness of the human heart is to think of us as a church more as an AA meeting where we come in, we recognize our fundamental brokenness and we recognize even as born again, redeemed people that even the good we do under the empowerment of the Spirit still will have a tendency to be infected by a mixture. It will be mixture. There is no perfect motive as followers of Jesus. And because of that, we have to understand that. And the more we realize that we are bound by those limitations of sin, the more we accept that we are not free to do whatever we want, the more we will have grace for one another. Because if we're free, we will immediately judge one another. Because he's like, well, he has the power to do better according to my judgment. But no, that is not what grace is all about. Grace meets us in our brokenness and it is the love of Christ alone that compels us to live differently. That's why I keep hammering on this. We need to have a low anthropology (laughs) so that we can have a big picture of how radical grace is. So this is the dilemma, but look what we have in God. And I love this. You have both the repentance and the restoration of God or the promise of restoration by God. How through the prophets, hope comes through judgment. And that is perfectly fulfilled in the cross of Calvary. Amos chapter 7, verse 4 through 6, it says, This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. 
the Lord relented concerning this. And that word relented is the same word that is translated repent. And all repentance means is a change of direction. Judgment was going this way, but God, in, in line with his character, tips the scales toward mercy. And he says, this also shall not be, said the Lord God. And I love this. Even the picture that we have of Amos as a mediator. We have, this happens with Moses and the children of Israel where God tells Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to start over and you're going to be the head of a new family. And Moses said, Lord, let it not be so. Do not let the nations mock you. Be merciful. And he shows mercy. And often hope comes through this reality that all of us are, in des- are deserving of judgment because all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. There is none who does good. There is no not one. That's the dilemma. That's the declaration. That's what law reveals like a plumb line from heaven. It's good, but it cannot save and it can't fix anything. And so God here recognizes the impossibility and it requires Him changing his direction to bring about a solution because the human heart can't bring out the solution. It can't create the solution. It can't provide a solution. Human beings in a fallen state will never provide the world with justice and righteousness. It's not going to (laughs) roll. It doesn't even stumble. It's it's like little, little blips uh, in, in, a, in a very, very faulty history. But look what God promises. And here is the messianic hope in, verse, in chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. And what is the booth of David? Now I ask you the question because I want to continue to ask a singular question to you guys. And it's going to be the only question. And even if it's not the answer to the question, I promise you that it's still ultimately the answer to every question. So what is the booth of David? Should I say, who is the booth of David? There's only one right answer, guys. Yes. The first service is like, Jesus? (laughs) Jesus is the right answer. The messianic hope is that God is going to do something that could not be expected nor understood. It is so contrary to the human experience is that God is going to enter into His own creation. The Creator become creature. He takes upon Himself human form. He sends His only Son. And God in human flesh shows us what righteousness and justice is. But this is the profound and the upside down reality is how does God bring the, look what it says, that, that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. Notice that the, that the redemptive story, the redemptive ark was never about Israel alone. That they were chosen and elect so that through them God can bring blessing to the world. His desire was restoration of his world, his humanity. His people. And how does he do that? And this is where it gets profound. If we can go to the last slide. This is how God brings about the reversal of judgment and burning everything clean and brings about restoration. He does it through the cross. And the reason I put the ladder and the cross up there is because I I want us to see 
that the tendency even for us as Christians is to, is to forget the cross and go back to ladders. Often the ladder is utilized to describe spiritual growth in the world religions. It cannot be so in Christianity. When Christians say that, that the gospel, that the Christian life, sanctification is a ladder, they are misreading the gospel fully. There is only one time in Scripture the word ladder is used. you know where it's used? It's used when Jacob has a dream and he sees a ladder, or it's actually stairs, uh, to heaven. And he sees angels ascending and descending upon that ladder. And Jesus interprets that dream in John chapter 1, the very last verse. He says, greater things will you see than this, for I tell you, Surely I tell you, you will see angels ascending and descending upon what? The Son of Man. He is the ladder. That it's not a ladder, it's a relationship. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love others as yourself. He is the answer. And the angels that ascend, the messengers that ascend and descend upon the Son of Man, is that, is, is he's saying, I have come to bring the message of God to man. And I have come to bring man back to God. And this is why Luther's gospel was a down-to-earth gospel. Not Dr. Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, who said that the, that the only thing that we can do as Christians is have the ability to distinguish between law and gospel, between ladders and the cross. Because this is the key to understanding why justice is an enigma for us. Because I don't believe that the church is responsible for bringing justice to the world. I actually would argue that the church is responsible for bringing grace to the world. Judgment was actually dealt with by Jesus himself on the cross. This is why his gospel is down to earth. It meets us in the stinking dirt. Because here's the thing, is that you can't judge justly because of the tendency toward self-righteousness. What we need is the life of Christ in us. And if we're to actually be consistent in our understanding of grace, what we need to understand is that Jesus was both the judge and the judged in our place. And he didn't just die for the victim, for the vulnerable. He died for the victim and the victimizer. He died for the oppressed and the oppressor. So for us, it's not actually our primary responsibility to meet just the needs of the vulnerable. Should we do that? Yes, we should. In the power of Jesus, in the love of Jesus, being conduits of his grace. But we are also called to actually love those who oppress the vulnerable. He takes it to a whole new level. Because up till the time of Jesus, the common belief in Israel was that you should hate your enemies. Those who threaten The work of God, those who threaten Torah, those who threaten our position as the chosen people are our enemy and we should have nothing to do with them. But let me ask you the question, how often does the church live with that same sort of mentality? It's an us against them out there mentality. Instead of being conduits of the very grace that saved us, we say we've got to protect ourselves from them out there. And we've got to put burdens on those who are in here, giving them ladders to our definition of what 
just living is. No, I want to say it again. The gospel is not a stinking ladder to climb. It's a cross that you die on. Because Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, he said, pick up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Now here's the powerful thing about the gospel, is that when we accept the gospel of Jesus Christ into our lives, it brings transformation, it brings renewal, it brings regeneration. We become born again. We are born into a family, the family of God. We become sons and daughters of the Most High God because we are positioned in the Son. But here's the thing that we need to understand as sons and daughters of Jesus, is that it creates actually a terrible freedom. And that terrible freedom means that you are forgiven and that is the trinity of mercy. (laughs) But that doesn't mean that you can't go out and make a complete mess of your life abusing that very freedom. Why do we as Christians often stop hearing the voice of our father? Because we're like the prodigal who drift and walk away from him. And so what's the answer? The answer is not the cross once and for all. The answer is the cross every single day because the cross is the place where our sins die. And who is the only one who is truly just and righteous? It is Jesus himself. And that is why I read this verse to you in closing. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's not a ladder that you could climb. You could never be good enough. God will never accept you based upon your effort. If you're a person here who has never received Jesus Christ into your life by faith, I need you to understand that you are not good enough no matter how good you think you are. None of us are. Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And you're like, that's so simple. How You just... Put my trust in Jesus? Yes. Faith not in the, I believe Jesus is the Son of God and died for my sins like I believe in the Loch Ness Monster. That's not saving faith. Faith in Jesus is a dependence upon Jesus that allows Jesus the right to be Jesus in and through your life. He says, he says this, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short. You've missed the mark of the glory of God and are justified. Justice, notice, has been served. It has been satisfied by the atoning work of Christ. Justified by His grace. The one-way love of God has come to you as a gift. It is incongruous. It has nothing to do with you. It comes from outside of you. And it comes as a person to dwell within you. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus died the death that we deserved so that we can live empowered by his life because death could not keep him. He conquered the great enemy of the church and that enemy is death itself. And he conquered it by taking it into himself. And I love this. It says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, in his patience, He has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's judgment on sin is real. And that's why we need Jesus. Because Jesus, we are told, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He 
God, our triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, worked out our redemption through the work of the cross. Jesus on the cross in agreement with the Father. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I will take their judgment into myself. And what I love about this is it tells me, I like what Paul Zoll says. He goes, I don't need a helper only. I need something more than an advocate. I certainly need a mediator when it comes to defending my life. But what I need the most is a substitute. So we read Amos 5.24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And I just want to tell you that the love of God is one-way love that travels from the deserving to the undeserving. And that is how we become conduits of the living water because Jesus says, come to me, you who are thirsty. He says, I will give you something to drink in which you never thirst again. I have dealt with the judgment that the sin of humanity deserves. I have been the judge and the judged in your place. And I died not only for the oppressed, but for the oppressor as well. And we as the church are called to become conduits of His grace to the world because we have His righteousness. And this is how it is. That we live the life. I would argue that the key to Dr. Martin Luther King's proclamation that he spoke when he said, I have a dream, is that the only thing that brings transformation to the world is the reconciliation that is worked out through faith in Jesus. John Perkins said, the only way to bring reconciliation to a neighborhood is to have a reconciled people living there. And so I believe the answer to the dilemmas that we are confronted with is that when the church gets real with its own brokenness and recognizes how radical God's grace, how good His love is, and you know that on your worst stinking day, Jesus is crazy about you, and you take that love into your heart in such a way that you cannot rest until you share it with others. May that be the redemptive story. May the waters of the gospel flow through our lives as a community. Let's get off the ladders. Let's get back on the cross. Jesus says, come, pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. The thing with the cross is it always means death. It's good death, though, because it's death that leads to resurrection. Die to the lie of who God never intended you to be so that you can come alive in Jesus today, right now. Amen? Let's pray.